When I started my law practice, I was representing a, a Christian company that built agricultural buildings. And so I had to go out to a job site one time. And so I drive up to this farm. And as I do, I see off to the left, here's the, the husband, and he has a hammer. And he's driving stakes into the ground, apparently kind of staking out a building. And then I look to the right, and I see his wife. And then I notice that his wife has a handgun in her hand, and she's pointing it directly at the husband. And this was one of those moments in life where time kind of slows down. <laughs> I'm thinking, all right, so he has a hammer. He's going to go after her. I need to go try to defend this woman. Number two, she's just done with it, all right? And she's going to take care of business. It's in the middle of the day. It doesn't matter. She's done. She's over with it. And then the third was, you know what? I'm just going to slowly back up, and I think I'm going to just go down the road and call the police. And about the time, this time, the wife sees me. She gets real red in the face. She throws the gun on the ground and runs inside. The husband sees me, like turns around, and he comes running over to the car, and I just kind of like slowly roll the window down. (laughs) He's like, sir, it is not what it appears. And I just have this look like, oh, yeah, the customer's already already right. There was nothing weird going on here. And he's like, well, you have to understand, we're trying to get this this building within 12 inches of grade, and so we need it to be level and I only have one laser pointer, and it's attached to my pistol. <laughs> so what would any reasonable person do? Just point it at, you know, your husband. And so I, was, I reflected on that. You know, laser pointers are, are really powerful tools. I mean, it can help you defend your family, and it can help you level a building. And if you have a cat, they are always so much fun. But they can also be misused. You know, what could go wrong? Just, you know, injury, death, a very difficult explanation to a judge or jury. Your Honor, I was just pointing the deadly end of a weapon at my husband because I wanted the grade to be within 12 inches. So we've been talking yesterday now today about another powerful tool, a tool that we have called citizenship. And we want to use it properly. In fact, the big idea of for our time together is this. As Christians, we are called to follow Jesus in every area of our lives including in our role as citizen. And that big question, that billion-dollar question we talked about yesterday was, well, how exactly are we supposed to do that now in an increasingly plural and polarized society? Anytime that I I preach, I try to do a couple of things. I want to bring scripture, of course, but also to do a bit of cultural analysis and then bring some practical ideas for living out our faith. Yesterday, I talked about these two competing views or definitions of freedom— And there's one other kind of cultural development that I think is really important when we're talking about Christian citizenship. And it is this basic idea that we now live in a digital Babylon, or a digital Babel. If you saw this coming down your street, um, it's time to head to the bunker because the Martians have invaded, all right? Actually, it's just your pizza. Um, And so one of the great achievements of humanity is you now have an autonomous, self-driving pizza delivery vehicle. We have arrived as a species, all right? And so there's lots of great things happening. But there are also some things that, and I love technology, but some things that concern me. Uh, Here's one of them. All right, so DAL-E is an artificial intelligence funded by a billion-dollar grant from Microsoft. It's basically an online robot. And... I typed into this artificial intelligent, Christian college student in chapel with a Bible listening closely to a lawyer with a lightsaber, okay? And this is what this artificial intelligence thinks you and I look like, okay? Now, no, this was not an image search. These images did not exist 
prior to me typing that into this search engine. This is what an artificial intelligence thinks we look like. And I don't know about you, but that gives me a few shivers, okay? <laughs> and again, I love technology. I think it's a great tool for spreading the gospel, but it can be concerning. And I'll give you one that scares me just a little more. So if you use an Apple iPhone, and you can look up later, just search significant locations on your iPhone. I did this. This is from my phone. This is a record from Sunday night. All right, and it shows that I was at the Dale Horton Auditorium or within one-tenth of a mile. And what's really concerning is that literally Apple knows where I was within one-tenth of a mile from 7.33 to 7.56 p.m. on October, October 30th. I don't know about you, but it, wants, it makes me want to take my iPad and throw it in a river, okay? And again, if you shut all that down, your iPhone won't work. And so I understand it, it is part of it. But you have to understand the power and the wealth in our world is no longer diamonds, no longer oil, is no longer oil, it's data. And there are forces, both businesses as well as governments on the planet right now that are using this untapped data, untapped power, like uh, Stalin or Hitler would have only dreamed of. And they're already using it to control people, to prevent people from worshiping as they should. And so when we think about technology, it's a big player here. Now, why do I bring all of that up? It's because as a society, we love our inventions. And our iPhones are always better. Our computers are always better. And because of that, we've come to the conclusion that we no longer need God. If you remember back in the scientific revolution, what, what did the scientists all say? They said that they were thinking God's thoughts after him. But now we think God is an afterthought. And we can engineer our way away from the need of a creator. And it's hubris, it's modern pride, but we see it in our society as well as in our own hearts at times. All right, so it's important to keep these things in mind as we dive into the rest of our analysis. Now, I was talking to some students last night and they, they mentioned that I was talking about dating yesterday. And the big idea behind this, this thought was dating's hard, but we, if, if it gets hard, we don't just quit. And they said, you left it a little unclear whether you're the one that broke up with your girlfriend via voicemail or if you were the one that received it. Now, I was the one that received it, okay, just to be clear. And because I said, look, don't quit dating, I also wanted to finish the story. I kind of left that hanging out there. So I met my wife, Carissa, here. And here's our crew. This was a picture about a year ago. So I was trying to find one uh, more recent. You know, if you can get the three-year-old to look at the camera, don't worry about the, the family dog. Uh, but I appreciate Carissa. She's on staff at our, our church, has a Christian music and theater studio. And so I, I kind of took my own advice. We continue to do that. And that's the idea with our citizenship, that even if it's difficult, even if it's a tough area that we have to steward, we continue to apply our faith in it. All right, so yesterday, just in a review very quickly, we talked about this four-step guide to being a gospel-centered citizen. The first one was to go over or review your role as citizen. We talked about this denarius that Jesus was looking at and how he was looking at the back and the front of the coin. We talked about that we're, we are Christians, our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom, that we are Caesar, that in the American system, we have authority and therefore responsibility. We talked about if you live in a different country with a different form of government, you have to apply this in your context. And then finally, that we're citizens, that we should bring moral and guidance and wisdom to the state, and then we should work for the good of all people. 
And we talked about the sword and the light, and we talked about um, the lightsaber, which is the tyrant's weapon of choice. If government is saying to the church, here's what's good, true, and beautiful, here's what's moral, then the roles of church and state are exactly backwards, and it is, in a sense, a lightsaber. Secondly, we talked about the scriptural imperative to offer prayer for and build relationships with government officials. And I meant to you that in our work in the public square, we had missed this very basic biblical command. And that question of that politician that you just love to hate, when was the last time you substantively prayed for that person's soul, for their family, for wisdom in the public square? That brings us to step number three. And that is to offer solutions and partner with government to solve key problems. And what we talk about in our work is that we move at the speed of relationships. So you have a strong foundation. You're showing these individuals in public life, hey, we care about you. We're praying for you. And then we're going to partner with you. Now back to yesterday, we talked about the role of the church. The role of the church is to fulfill the Great Commission. To do good works that point to Jesus. And then the role of the state, if you remember, was to punish evil... And promote good. And we're talking about how God designed these things. We believe that the doing good piece of the church's role and the promoting good piece of the government's role should fit together like puzzle pieces. And we should be partners rather than opponents in working in our society. I mentioned the meeting with Governor Holcomb yesterday. And in this meeting, we asked Governor Holcomb, Governor Holcomb, what are the worst issues in our state and how can the church help? He didn't really have to spend any time thinking about it because he thinks about these issues every day. And so he gave me three things, foster care, the drug crisis, and mental health. And I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, we'll get on that and get it solved by Tuesday. (laughs) Now these are incredibly complex and difficult issues. I mentioned Indiana, but everywhere I go in the country, I sometimes say these things affect us from the holler to the high rise. All right, It's everywhere. These issues are everywhere. They're complex issues, they're difficult issues, largely because, as we talked yesterday, the natural family is breaking down, and so you have all of these problems. So what I'm trying to do as I go through this is just to show you practically how we're trying to work this out in our work. And so I want to give you some specific examples of this. There are many great organizations and Christians doing great things. I'm just going to share a few with you today. So God blessed us with an opportunity to meet with the head of our Department of Child Services in Indiana. She's a fellow believer that said God had called her in a a sense. She she came into this role and said, I don't want to just engage DCS, I want to transform it. And she asked the church to go upstream with the Department of Child Services to keep kids out of foster care. And she's done a great job. Indiana was one of the worst states in the country. Now our numbers are much better. And one of the great ways we're able to work with DCS on this issue is something called the Care Portal. The Care Portal is something that churches and other nonprofits and businesses can sign up for. And if DCS comes into a home and recognizes there's no food or there's not a refrigerator, then this message can go out to the churches and the church can show up with that bed, with the refrigerator, with clothes, and keep those kids out of foster care. It's already done some amazing work in Indiana. It was piloted in a few counties. It's now going to many more. The next issue, we talked about the drug crisis. And of course, the drug crisis is affecting Americans everywhere. And so we've jumped in, partnered with our attorney general. Uh, Here we were presenting at an annual symposium on drug addiction recovery. And one of the amazing things in this particular space is that faith-based addictions ministries 
have incredible results when it comes to what's called the recidivism rate. Recidivism means somebody goes to jail, they then come out of jail, and then they go right back in. And there's one ministry that I've worked with, the general recidivism rate is around 80%. Yeah, it's that bad. And this ministry has a recidivism rate of something like 8 or 9%. Why? Because they're bringing them to Jesus, helping them change their identity. The last one there is mental health. And something I appreciate about Generation Z is that everyone has struggles, has issues, like they're anxious, self-doubt. But Generation Z just says, hey, look, these are my struggles. I'm going to share them with you. And it's something I appreciate about your generation. The lieutenant governor in Indiana had a, a sibling that took her own life due to mental health struggles. And so this is something she's very passionate about. We've had the opportunity to partner with a roundtable that she created And we're encouraging churches all across the state to begin counseling ministries to help with these issues. Now, I know that's a lot. All right, those three issues, um, the governor asked me to go through a listening, go on a listening tour through all the departments in the state. And I I did that. So there's so much information here. But we're now asking churches to come impact these issues. Now, let me apply this to you. And I know that you're, you're still a college student. But something I want to encourage you to think about is that you're already a citizen. Many of you already have the opportunity to vote. So this isn't something to just wait on down the road. How can you partner with the college here, with your local church back home, to impact some of these issues? As I said yesterday, most Christians will have their greatest impact in their own zip code. So maybe with your skills, your abilities, your passions, your life experiences, how can you jump in, help your church to impact these issues? And here's the goal. My goal is that when I come back to the state and say, look at this ministry, 80% recidivism rate, 8% recidivism rate, and those in government say, how did you do that? I get to point to Jesus. That's the goal. All right, so we're talking about just these basic steps. Scripture says that in in Matthew 5, 16, let your lights shine before men. They would see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Again, just a basic biblical command. So we've got a strong foundation. We then are showing them, hey, we care about you individually. We're praying for you. And then we're showing them we care. We show up when the community is in need. We want to make a difference in the most difficult areas in our society. And that sets us up for the last step, which is to do the hard work of Christian citizenship. Now, most people are generally pretty nice and kind. But then you start talking about politics and it's kind of like, all right, so it's, it's kind of like this cat. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever given your cat a bath and it's like that. And some of you are like, how dare you insult my feline, all right? Well, here's a dog, all right? So it's, I had a dog like that. I give him a bath, like, what are you, a rat? I don't know. What happened to you, man? But this is kind of what happens to people in politics. It's like we're talking, we're having a decent discussion, and then, ah, we, we, we talk, we change into an alien. It's like animal to alien here. And so as Christians, as I've said from Scripture, is that we're commanded to steward our vote. We're commanded to engage our culture, to shine the light of Jesus into every area of our lives. It just happens that this is a difficult area. So how can we do that well? And as I jump in, as, and I've, as I've been praying through sermons like this and specifically this sermon, I, I've prayed about how specific to be. Because I could probably get up here and say a few good things and everybody say amen But I don't know that that's really all that helpful. And so I do want to get into some specific issues because I think I can show you how I'm trying to navigate them. You can disagree with me, but I want to show you how that's done 
or at least how we're trying to accomplish it in the public square. Now, I want to ask you to do something, like almost like mentally, intentionally, I want you to try to do something. I want you to take off your American partisan lens, your American partisan glasses, all right? Because if you look in social media, you look on the news media, everything is partisan. And anybody in, in, from the faith perspective that comes into public life, everybody's like, oh, you're just acting in a partisan manner. Hopefully by now, I've, I've shown you my motivation is not to bring about the, the conquest or victory of one political party. It is to follow Jesus and be faithful and confident as a follower of Jesus in the public square. So if you will, kind of take those glasses off, the partisan ones, and put on biblical ones, all right? And we want to look at it through this lens. So as I was praying about, all right, different groups in public life have platforms or they have um, policies that they promote. What, what are the issues that God would have us care about? As followers of Jesus, as Christians in the public square, what are the issues that God would have us care about? And so God led me to this um, star-shaped platform for uh, the church's public witness. You'll, you'll note at the middle of the star is the term Imago Dei. Now, lawyers figured out a long time ago, if you say something in Latin, it sounds cooler, and you can probably bill more. I don't know. But Imago Dei simply means we're made in the image of God. And in Scripture, you have stars they're always pointing to Jesus. And then in our flag, we have 55-pointed stars. And so that's why I used the star here. But note that all of these issues are sourced from and connected by the fact that we are made in God's image, the sanctity of life. That from conception until natural death, we are all made in the image of God, worthy of the protection of our laws. Ethnic unity and justice. That God created us equal. And regardless of our ethnicity, we are of equal dignity and worth. The Matthew 25 issues, that we are to care for the prisoner, the poor, the immigrant, in, in scripture it's the stranger. The biblical sexual ethic, the marriage is between a man and a woman. They were created as male and female and that those two genders together reflect the image and nature of God. And then religious liberty for all people. And this is a soul liberty, meaning it's not just a Christian favoritism. It's a soul liberty that says that because we bear God's image, then we should be free to believe and live out our faith without fear of punishment or mistreatment by the government. Now, I want to actually go into a few of these. But before I do, this, again, just scriptural biblical principle helped me work through a couple of difficult issues in public life. And the first one is that Christians are often accused of legislating their own morality. All right? and it's like this selfish thing. You guys just legislate your own Morality. Now, anyone legislating anything is legislating their own morality, for sure. But if you are promoting these principles in public life, and this is what gave me great confidence as I step into the public square, you are not selfishly legislating your own morality. Rather, you are promoting God's principles in an institution that he created, and you can be confident that it is good for you, but also for all people. Again, back to the fact that government was God's idea. We're promoting his principles in the context of public life. The other one that this helped me with, and I really encourage Christian audiences to consider this, is that these principles are biblical ones. All right? I've, I've put the Bible verses there. If you'd like to come out later and you, you disagree with those, you can. But I believe these are pretty basic, simple biblical principles sourced from the Imago Dei. Now, some of these principles have a very straight line clear application into public life. But others of them, it's not as clear. Not saying that 
the Bible isn't clear in its principles, but sometimes you get into an application and there can be Christians on both sides of it. Now, often we'll say that Romans 13, which has to do with government, is followed by Romans 14, which has to do with conscience. And Paul's talking about the eating of meats given to idols, of the celebration of holy days. This was a great controversy in the church at the time. And so you think Paul would say, hey, don't have an opinion about those really difficult, complex things. But what does he say? He actually says, be fully persuaded in your own mind and then work together towards unity and with love towards one another. And so something I don't see Christians using is a tab. You think of a kind of a browser tab in um, an online browser for conscience issues. Because I have seen Christians, and this burdens my heart, that have worshipped together, that loved one another, or that are pursuing the gospel, and then they have a disagreement over something that is actually fairly slight politically, and they literally will break fellowship with one another. And so we need to have a tab that there can be followers of Jesus that have a different political opinion on something that's not a straight line into public life, and we should have a strong opinion, but then give grace to our fellow believers and keep the gospel, the work of the church, first and foremost. All right, with that in mind, a couple of ways that we practice this is through public policy. Now, sometimes people are like, oh, public policy legislation is bad, it's, um, that's tough stuff. I just look at public policy as an expression of love for our neighbors. Do I truly love my neighbor if I do and say nothing about the most important issues of our lives? And again, if we're, we're citizens, we're supposed to seek the common good of all people, then we should do so. Indiana was the first state in the nation to take up the issue, back to our star, that first one, the sanctity of life, to take up the issue of abortion since Roe versus Wade was overturned. Indiana passed an abortion ban with some exceptions. And my, my big takeaway from being there during those two weeks, the organization I'm a part of was fully involved in this process. My big takeaway is that we as Christians still have a lot of work to do to change hearts and minds. Um, about the sanctity of life, that this is important. Now, this, this law also included a component of about a $75 million down payment to help vulnerable women and children. And we are talking to state government, not asking for that money, but saying, how can we coordinate with the state to serve those that are in need? So we talked about the sanctity of life. The next one is ethnic unity and justice. And I've been privileged over the last couple of years to, to meet and be able to work with uh, Dr. Charles Ware. Uh, Dr. Charles Ware actually wrote the, blood, uh, wrote the book, One Blood, along with Ken Ham, who I know was a recent guest. And he now pursues uh, what he calls grace relations, helping churches that are kind of primarily one ethnicity kind of come together and work together. I've also been blessed um, by this story. And I, now, I do not get an extra Molinex mocha from the coffee shop for sharing this. In fact, I did not know this. I, the college doesn't talk about it. I did not know this until I wrote, read the book, Builders of the Dream, which is the story of Arlen and Becca Horton. Pensacola Christian Academy was started in 1953. And from its very beginning, Pensacola Christian Academy welcomed all ethnicities. It was never segregated. The public schools in Florida were not fully segregated until the 1970s. And if you can imagine the cultural pressure that they experienced by saying, this is, this is a biblical principle... And we are going to build a ministry on this biblical principle. I know this is a controversial topic in our society. But again, take off the partisan lenses. Put on the biblical lenses. This is something that we should promote. I'm grateful also for the opportunity this year uh, to bring on to our team, um, Herzog Cardona, 
who's an Hispanic pastor. Um, we had an opportunity to, to preach at an Hispanic church uh, recently. He translated for me. Now, you've now heard like a sermon and a half from me. Can you imagine having to translate that? <laughs> like, her son, you're going to have an extra crown or an extra star in your crown in heaven for having to do that. But it's just been a blessing to be able to get to see and meet and work with pastors from different contexts. Something else that we've worked to do, now kind of moving into this, the Matthew 25 issues, caring for the stranger, the immigrant. In South Indianapolis, we have the largest contingent of Burmese immigrants, I believe, in the United States. And these Burmese are coming in. If you remember the story of Adoniram Judson, who was a, a Baptist missionary, and there were other missionaries there, they went to Burma, and the Burmese immigrants were about 95, not just not just Christian, 95% Christian, but 95% Baptist. Their churches are growing, they're booming, and they're buying up older church buildings that have been abandoned. Well, most of their elders don't speak English, so they did not know that you have to file something called an application for tax exemption, meaning we don't have to pay taxes on the property. Well, about five years pass, and a local assessor, a local official, figures out that they didn't file that and hits one of these churches with a $63,000 back tax bill. Like, we knew you fled political persecution from Burma. Welcome to the United States. We're going to sell your church building. <laughs> like, this is not how we should treat our neighbors. And so we're able to support a bill that says when one church sells to another, that tax exemption automatically transfers unless there's some proof of fraud. And so it's blessed to be there and worship with that congregation as well. Moving on to this, this next one, the biblical sexual ethic. There was uh, something that happened in Indiana um, that was very concerning. Now, I'm, I'm giving some Indiana-specific examples. Some of these were national stories as well, but similar things are happening all over the country through our network. And what happened in West Lafayette, in Indiana, is that one of the, the nation's largest biblical counseling ministries is there. The West Lafayette Council attempted to pass a law that banned, quote-unquote, conversion therapy. Now, I don't know of any evangelical ministry that actually practices conversion therapy, but the definition was so broad that it included any pastor, any youth pastor, or even a parent that was simply teaching their child about what the Bible says about human sexuality. And it was a $1,000 fine per day. And I love, we had uh, Pastor Viers on our podcast, and I love what Pastor Viers said. Now, he loves the community. They have amazing community centers. They're doing so many amazing things there. But he, he told me, Josh, if they pass this ordinance... I'm going to violate it every day, and hopefully before breakfast, okay? And so they brought in some, some attorneys, and the West Lafayette Council withdrew that because it was blatantly unconstitutional. So this is just an example of certainly what we believe about marriage, about human sexuality, can be controversial, and it's something that we have to stand up to defend. This next one is, is very close to, to me because I'm directly involved with this case. And it has been a matter of great weight, for me and my clients over the last year or so, it is ongoing litigation, so I can't go into too much detail. But essentially, these are Christian parents. And as I mentioned earlier, we believe that we're created as male or female. And then embracing who God has created us to be is what leads to flourishing. We believe that our faith is true. We also believe that it's good. And so from the research that's coming in, we recognize there are individuals that experience gender dysphoria a dissonance in between their biological sex and a perceived danger. But from the research that, that is coming in, there are other ways to deal with this than the affirmational method, which is what we see all the time in our culture. 
but rather to say most kids will come out of this. They'll, they'll desist from feeling these things by the time they go through puberty. And that oftentimes there are other issues going on. And so let's minister to the whole person, try to bring them back to truth. Note that part of this case is that the state said to the parents from the very time that they took the child out of their custody, you cannot speak to your child about what you believe unless it's in a supervised setting. And they compared the speech of simply what the Bible says is true to parents yelling and screaming at one another. And I bring this to you to just note how difficult things are becoming. There, I enjoy laughing, I enjoy some humor, but I do try to be a hopeful realist. I know God's in control, but there are some difficult things here. Last time I was here, I shared the story of Heather Scriba. Heather is a young woman who got a hold of LGBTQ ideology, fully socially and then physically transitioned. But as soon as she did that, she realized that she had made a skin-level change, in her own words, a skin-level change that didn't solve her soul-level angst. We're seeing around the world places in Europe that are now banning transition before the age of 18 because so many people in their 20s are coming back to you, coming back to authorities saying, I was 11, I was 12, I needed guidance, and you, you told me all of this, and now I feel terrible. And so this certainly is an issue that is front and center in our culture right now. But as I said yesterday, Christians have never run away from these issues. Christians have always run towards them. This just happens to be the issue of our time. And I'm confident that what the Bible says is both true and good. And that over time, that will be very clear. And so I've tried to share with you these five issues. Some would say that some of these issues sound more conservative. Or some of them sound more liberal. I'm here to tell you that they're biblical. And they're issues that we should promote in public life. So I talked a little bit about the practice, certainly on social media, remembering you're a Christian, but also engaging in public policy as an expression of love for our neighbors, and then certainly voting. And perhaps when I started yesterday, some of you thought, well, he's just going to be here to tell me to vote for this next election. Hopefully you can see Christian citizenship is just, it's so much more broad than just this one exercise, but it is important. I do have a blog post, if you'd like to read more about this, called Jethro's Voting Guide, where I go into a lot of commonly asked questions. I'll I'll just review this with you. Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law in in Exodus 21, he actually gives four qualifications for those in public office. He says this, they should be competent, able. Two, they should be moral. Third, they should be honest. And four, they should show financial integrity. And so those are some basic qualifications you can look at. Now, again, to kind of brass tacks, voting is always going to be a complex moral exercise. Why? Because unless Jesus is on the ballot, you're always voting for the lesser of two evils. And so you are having to take your Christian faith and say, all right, how do I apply this here? It's also really complex in the United States because we only have two primary parties. Now, I know there's some Christians that support third parties, But to have meaningful influence in public life, we essentially have two parties. It'd be easier in Europe where you can have lots of different parties. And so you have to look at these things in context. And here's the question that I would encourage you to think about. You you have kind of one vote. The question being, how can I use my vote to promote kingdom principles in public life? How can I best do that? Using this limited opportunity, how can I best do that in public life? Now, why is this important? Some may think, well, why would I take the time to go vote? Here's why. The Dobbs case, which overturned Roe versus Wade, instantly changed American politics. Why? 
Because now your state representative makes really important decisions on biblical principles. Our life bill is now in front of our Indiana State Supreme Court. For a long time, Christians have focused on the U.S. Senate or the Supreme Court as important issues, and they are. And now Christians are even running for local school boards, saying we need to get back and have an influence on our local schools. Do you know how many votes decide a local school board? A handful. Do you know how many votes decide something like a state rep battle? Sometimes a handful. And so your vote really matters. I've tried to be as practical as I can today. And so as you're thinking about jumping in and having conversations with others, here are a couple of thoughts. You may say, I don't know about talking to other people. That's kind of scary to me. Your best weapon is a question. And I have conversations with people that disagree with me all the time. Here are a couple samples. What do you mean by that? How did you arrive at that conclusion? How do you know what you believe is true? And then saying, look, I value our relationship. I know we disagree. I want to try to understand your position better. So there are some tools. So in review, here's your four-step guide to gospel-centered citizenship. To go over or review your role as citizen. Secondly, to offer prayer for, build those relationships with your government officials. And again, the big idea this morning is don't think about, oh, I'm preparing to be a citizen. No, you are a citizen. And so I'll tell you, elected officials, they love talking to students. So can you get a group together? Go encourage them. Partner with them to impact a key issue and then do the hard work of Christian citizenship. I try to wrap up what I say into kind of one thought, and here it is from a Christian statesman. said this, whatever makes men and women good Christians makes them good citizens. May we live out that type of good citizenship in quickly changing time.